Welcome to Cleary Gottlieb's Antitrust Review, a podcast focused on antitrust enforcement, policy, and practice. In an increasingly complex and noisy world, we strive to provide insight, clarity, wisdom, and light. My name is Nick Levy, and I'll be your host today. My guest today is one of the most interesting and challenging jobs in our field. A lawyer by training, she was a leading practitioner at a magic circle firm in London before becoming general counsel of the CMA a decade ago. During that time, she saw the CMA change almost beyond recognition, seizing the opportunity that Brexit created to firmly establish itself as one of the world's most feared antitrust agencies in the world. At the beginning of last year, she was formally appointed to succeed Andrea Cacelli as CEO of the CMA, the first woman to hold the role. Her first year has been extraordinarily eventful. Microsoft Activision, a strategic steer from the government, new powers to regulate digital platforms and to fine companies for breaches of consumer protection law and changes to the UK's phase two merger control. I'm delighted to welcome Sarah Cardell. Sarah, you've been in the role for a year. How's it going? What have you enjoyed? What are you most proud of? And what are your priorities for the year? Hi, Nick, and thank you so much for, for having me on this session. So it has been a phenomenal year, as you say, and actually it's incredibly difficult to pick out one thing that I'm most proud of because I'm I'm just incredibly proud of everything that we have achieved as an organisation. And, and I really do emphasise that because it is through the real hard work and dedication and commitment of everybody who works at the CMA that we have been able to have such an impactful year. But if I if I kind of reflect back and think back to when I first took up the role as CEO, and obviously I had the benefit of starting in that position pretty much at the same time as we had our new chair, Marcus Bockerink, coming on. Um, and together we really took the opportunity to take a bit of a step back and look at the, the strategy and the purpose of the CMA and really to, to sort of define that in quite simple terms, our purpose being to promote competitive markets and tackle unfair behaviour for the benefit of people, businesses and the UK economy. And, and that is really important because we have been, I think, laser focused over the last year in really zoning in on the outcomes that we are seeking to achieve through all of the work that we're doing, the outcomes that we're seeking to achieve for people in making sure that people can get the best deals, can get uh, great choices and fair deals to make sure that businesses can innovate and thrive in competitive markets. And of course, that through our work that we can support the growth of the UK economy. And that has driven, as I say, a real focus on outcomes, but it's also driven a real focus on how we go about choosing the work that we do and how we go about doing that work. So maybe just to, you know, to give a few examples that I'm particularly proud of over the last year. When we think about our work for people, not, not surprisingly, we've had a real focus on cost of living issues, but we thought about that very selectively. Where is it that the CMA can really intervene to make a difference and how do we best do that? So we had our year-long market study in relation to road fuel, which we concluded. And I think, you know, we could all see the direct impact of that work, you know, frankly, and the prices at the pump, which we saw many times over coming down off the back of announcements that we made during the course of that study, and also the government taking up the recommendations that we made about introducing ongoing monitoring and, and a pricing mechanism there. And then we've looked at groceries, but we haven't just said, well, let's just take a general look at how competition is working in the groceries market. We've really focused in on particular issues where we can make a difference, whether that's unit pricing, using our consumer protection powers, whether it's now work we're doing on loyalty pricing schemes, important work that we've doing, highlighting issues we found in relation to infant formula, and of course, work now in relation to vets as well, which I think we had an unprecedented 55,000 public responses to 
our survey in relation to vets. So I, you know, I'm I'm really really proud that we are choosing work that really resonates with the public because that is that is so important. But at the same time, we're working on issues for businesses. We've got a huge amount of work in relation to digital markets. I'm sure we'll come on to talk more about that and and broader issues around sustainability, for example, uh, which I think is an important priority for us as an organisation. But it's not, as I say, it's not just about what we're doing. It's also about how we're working. So whilst that kind of external facing work is probably quite visible to people. Perhaps what you haven't seen so much of is the sort of organisational transformation projects that we've got ongoing at the same time. So a real focus on making sure that we are doing the very best to recruit and retain the best talent to drive that work for the CMA, a huge programme of, of digital transformation. And it makes me incredibly proud because I, I think I have a unique privilege to have this role. And it is great to have such a wonderful set of colleagues to, to work together with to deliver that work. Sarah, thank you. You, uh, you referred to the fact there was a new team, yourself and the new chair at the uh, head of uh, the uh, CMA. The bar's obviously been trying to read the tea leaves to see whether they should expect continuity or change. I think you've explained that there's quite a bit of uh, change going on. The annual plan for the year placed a great deal of emphasis on promoting competitive markets and tackling unfair behaviour in the UK. And I wondered whether this signalled an intention to focus more on domestic and local cases rather than international ones. And a related question on your objectives. I referenced in the introduction a strategic steer you received from the government that includes a focus on driving economic growth and addressing cost of living. How do you expect this to affect your work in practice? Yeah, so as I said, you know, we did take the opportunity to, to really reframe and refocus our strategy and priorities. And I think absolutely rightly, we have a focus on driving outcomes in the UK for the benefit of UK uh, businesses, people who live and work in the UK and to support the UK economy. But that absolutely doesn't mean that we do that in a, in a sort of bubble. It doesn't mean that we are disconnected from from sort of global issues. And I think you can see that coming through really clearly in the work that we've done. You mentioned Microsoft Activision, but that's just one example of the many global deals that we're now looking at through our merger review function. Many of our antitrust cases, particularly in the digital sector, obviously touch on global issues and have a, a number of similarities, commonalities with issues that a number of other antitrust agencies are looking at around the world. And we have incredibly deep and broad engagement internationally, both bilaterally with many other agencies, with multilateral engagement through the ICN, OECD and others. So I think, you know, it's it's right, as I say, that we have a responsibility to focus on the UK. That's our mandate. That's our, that's our mandate. That's our responsibility. But it's equally important that we do that, recognising the global nature of many of the markets and many of the deals that we are looking at. In relation to the government's strategic steer. I mean, this isn't, first of all, I should say, this isn't a new thing. So it's, it's, it's quite common over time that the government has introduced the strategic steer. And actually, I think if you, if you look at our reframe strategy from last year and the strategic steer that came through from the government, there's an incredible amount of commonality between the two. And that shouldn't be a surprise because frankly, I think we are all looking at, at driving those outcomes in, in terms of promoting competitive markets and protecting consumers. So, you know, there's a focus in the strategic steer on cost of living on digital markets on supporting growth and innovation and that's incredibly important obviously because given the current economic climate competition has a really key role there to play 
in driving that innovation, investment and growth. So we see a lot of alignment really across the two, which is frankly very, very helpful and enables us to continue with, with our mandate very much following the, the strategic direction that we set out last year. Thanks, Sarah. Can we turn to merger control? Last year was obviously a fascinating year. This year is already an extremely interesting one. Many will remember it as the year of Microsoft Activision. I, like many, was involved in the case and followed its, its twists and turns. The transaction, as you know, was unusual for all sorts of reasons, including the extensive media coverage it attracted. You've spoken quite a bit about it, including to forcibly rebut any suggestion that the CMA's decision to approve the transaction after it had initially prohibited it was due to political pressure. So standing back now with the benefit of a bit of time, what, if any, lessons do you think can be drawn from the case? Yeah, I mean, it was obviously a very important case, although I would say that uh, you know we shouldn't overstate the importance of any single case. And, and clearly, there's a lot of work going on across a number of different cases in relation to merge control. But undoubtedly, there are some important lessons or certainly reflections from, from the case. I think the first reflection for me is that the case shows, reinforces, I think, is, is quite properly our focus on mergers that may impact on competition in dynamic digital markets. Again, that's not unique to the CMA. It's, it's a focus that we have in common with the European Commission, US agencies, and, and many others. But it is really important, I think, and we've seen that across a number of our cases, and we saw it in Microsoft Activision, where we were focusing on that impact on cloud gaming as an, as an emerging sector. And I think what that, you know, stepping back, what that shows is that merger control is a critical tool when we're looking to make sure that we can really ensure that these emerging but potentially very important markets and sectors remain open to effective competition as those markets are developing. And merge control is an incredibly important tool there. That doesn't mean that we will block every deal, by the way, that impact, you know, that has some impact in those markets. But whereas in that case you had effectively the combination of Microsoft with its incumbency position across a number of different elements combined with um, Activision's very strong position across the, the gaming content, then you know, I think it was absolutely right that we focused in on those issues. And that, as I say, we had in common with, with the European Commission and the US agencies. You know, I think the other reflection for me, and you mentioned, is um, the extent of the discussion around sort of political lobbying or potential political lobbying. And I have been very clear on this because I think it is incredibly important. You know, I've been very, very clear that there was absolutely no attempt by any politicians or any government officials to influence our decision making and nor should there be. And indeed, you know, I think it is absolutely widely respected and understood that the independence of the CMA's decision making in relation to merge control is, you know, is a really important integral part of the robustness of the UK merge control regime. So, you know, I hope that we've put that one to bed. And certainly in many of the conversations actually that I've had with colleagues in law firms, I think they are equally keen to emphasise to clients going forward that actually businesses who are subject to merge control review in the UK are best sort of channelling their energies and efforts into engagement directly with the CMA and not into indirect attempts to influence our decision making through lobbying. And that's certainly something I would continue to advise businesses and their advisors of. And then I think the third kind of broad reflection for me probably not surprisingly, is around sort of remedies and, and outcomes. So, you know, we saw some interesting twists and turns, as you say, in that case. And taking a step back from the specifics of that case, I think it is really important for businesses and advisors and, and for the CMA, and we'll come on to that, to reflect on 
how we can make sure that we have the best and most productive early engagement on potential remedies because you know frankly what happened in the microsoft activision case was not a good model to follow you know we do not want to end up in a position where we have parties coming forward after the end of a phase two process seeking to restructure the deal to address our concerns we we addressed it in that case but it would be far better would have been far better would be far better in future for parties to engage in those kind of discussions early in the phase two process and that hopefully is another message that i've given out loud and clear but one that bears repeating sarah thank you for that i think your uh, confirmation that there was no political pressure here was very timely and welcome we'll come on to coordination with other agencies in a second and the phase two process the changes that you're making there that possibly will make it easier to engage in the in the early discussion of remedies that you were that you were suggesting was perhaps a shortcoming in the approach adopted in that case but turning if i may to the uh, remedy that was accepted because it seems to me that may be one of the most uh, enduring aspects of the case for those who didn't follow follow the transaction closely the european commission approved the transaction on the basis of a package of licensing remedies relating to cloud gaming uh, that the cma effectively rejected in its initial prohibition decision and microsoft then restructured the transaction in effect to transfer the licensing of activision cloud gaming rights to a third party Ubisoft, the CMA approved the deal on that basis, subject to a slightly different set of behavioral commitments. Um, So a couple of questions, Sarah. Does this signal a new openness on the CMA's part to accept behavioral remedies? And should companies involved in vertical mergers consider something like the Ubisoft licensing structure as a good template to address potential foreclosure concerns? So I think probably the first thing to say is that and I've said this before, we don't regard the restructure that Microsoft and Activision put forward as a behavioural remedy in that sort of conventional sense. What we did, is, if we go back, and as you said, is um, the group, obviously, because it was a phase two investigation, looked carefully at the um, original set and revised sets of remedies that put forward through the phase two process. And sort of distinction from the, the commission, the group decided that those remedies were not sufficient to address their concerns. And of course, it is important to emphasise the statutory test that we have in the UK, where we have a legal obligation to make sure that any remedies that are put forward comprehensively and and fully effectively address those those competition concerns. So the group were clearly of the view that the original proposals did not, the deal was blocked. Microsoft and Activision sought to understand whether there was a way to restructure the deal quite fundamentally restructure the deal to address those competition concerns and as you know that required a new phase one review so what they notified in that new review was a, as you say a fundamentally restructured deal which carved out um, the cloud streaming rights in relation to activision's content and divested those to third-party ubisoft now as i say we see that really as a, as a structural solution restructuring of the acquisition and it's important to emphasize that what Ubisoft received as a result of that restructure was the, the rights in perpetuity to all of Activision's gaming content that was that existed at the time, but also that was a created or would be created over the next 15 years. So it's quite a fundamental restructure. You know, if you step back and think, well, what does that mean for our broader approach on remedies? 
I've been very clear, many of, of us working at the CMA have been very clear that we believe that there is a high bar to conventional behavioural remedies for very good reasons. And we've outlined that it doesn't mean that that bar is insurmountable, but you know, I think rightly that bar is high in order to sure, ensure that any remedies are fully effective. That position hasn't changed, whether or not the restructure that we saw in relation to Microsoft Activision provides a template. You know, I wouldn't put too much emphasis on that. Obviously, every deal has to be considered on its own merits and any any solution has to address the particular concerns at hand. I think the key thing, as I've emphasised, is that any remedy, any restructure really has to fully and comprehensively address the concerns. And it's, you know, it's important to emphasise, perhaps just going back to that behavioural point, that, for example, we don't have in place here any sort of complicated ongoing monitoring mechanism, which, you know, as we as we know, is one of the concerns that we have about behavioural remedies generally. So I think, it, you know, I think it's a fairly specific solution that, that came through that particular deal. But the broader point I would emphasise is that if parties do think that they have a, a way to restructure the deal to address our concerns, that is something to engage on really early and fully. Sarah, thanks for that. Just staying on uh, merger control, as you know well, because you were general counsel on his leadership, your predecessor, Andrea Cacelli, was widely seen as uh, taking the opportunity that Brexit created to carve a more interventionist path with respect to merger control. In one of your first speeches as CEO, you seemed at least, I thought, to uh, to suggest that you were going to maintain uh, his levels of um, uh, enforcement and explain that you, you thought that the uh, uh, the interventionism, if you like, of that people had seen had been a justified response to historic under-enforcement. If you think of a spectrum from, let's say, zero to 10 with the least, uh, with the most permissive agency at a zero, and let's say the FTC at a nine, if Andrea was at an eight, would you think of yourself at a seven or an eight? Do you think that in any way the um, enforcement policy has softened over the last year or you're carving a similar path to Andrea's? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, I'm I'm not sure when I think about our approach, I think of it in in that sort of scale of one to one to ten. How interventionist are we? Because I don't I don't really think that that is the right frame of reference. I don't think an agency should be measured sort of in the abstract on on a scale of intervention, because ultimately the approach that we take will depend on the mergers that we are reviewing, of course. And at the end of the day, the CMA's mandate, the CMA's responsibility is to make sure that we look closely at deals that may give rise to competition concerns and that we take robust steps to prevent any anti-competitive impact of, of deals. So that is that is the standard that I think we should hold ourselves to. We do that in a very objective and evidence-based way. You know, I'm incredibly, you asked earlier what I was proud of. Actually, one of the things I'm proudest of is that that we have, I think, a very strong reputation for that evidence-based objective approach. And obviously that's reinforced with merger control through our phase two panel group decision-making as well. It does genuinely mean that we look at each case on its merits. Now, you know, as you say, I work very closely with Andrea when we were really looking at the need to reset because of the impact of sort of under enforcement, particularly as we all know in relation to mergers that have gone through in the digital sector in 
in sort of previous years. And Matt was absolutely right. And we've seen that in our approach in relation to the kind of analytical framework that we look at for digital mergers. We've seen that in our approach, for example, to uncertainty. I've talked many times about the fact that, of course, merge control is a forward looking exercise. And of course, with dynamic, fast moving markets, you can't have perfect knowledge and perfect certainty about how markets will evolve. But we need to take our decisions based on the evidence and the information that we have before us. So in that sense, I think you know our approach is absolutely consistent. We've got our framework that was set out in our merger assessment guidelines back in 2021, and we continue to apply that. I think we are robust. I think we will step up and take action where that action is needed. We will do that to protect UK businesses, UK consumers and the UK economy. But it doesn't mean that we have a sort of per se interventionist approach. It doesn't mean that, you know, philosophically, we have a view that we have to intervene in every digital merger coming. It's a much more nuanced position than that. And I hope that's that's reasonably well understood. Thanks, Sarah. So we should judge you less by the number of transactions that get blocked or by the quality of the decisions. Absolutely. You know, and I do think an important element there, you know, particularly for the advisor community, is what are the deals that are coming through? You know, frankly, we we've seen some deals come through which they're, they're fairly obviously problematic. And you know, perhaps advisors and businesses might might reflect on whether those are the deals that an agency should be spending many months looking at. There are other deals coming through where they are genuinely difficult to call. And, you know, it, it needs a, a thorough and detailed review on an objective evidence basis to, to reach a conclusion as to whether those are problematic or not. And we've seen that, you know, in, in some of our cases, Broadcom VMware, VSAT, MSAT work, where ultimately we cleared those deals having done that review. Thanks, Sarah. You, you've referred to the phase two process a couple of times. As many listeners will know, the UK has, I think, a unique system in phase two of an independent panel being appointed. That has strengths, but there are also aspects of it that some have, some have criticised, one being that it's not as easy to sit in front of the ultimate decision makers to understand what kind of remedies could be required to address concerns, at least still quite late in the process, um, and others being the relatively uh, the relatively infrequent interactions that one has with the inquiry group. So one of the major initiatives you've overseen has involved looking at phase two investigations and proposing ways to allow for greater engagement with the inquiry group. Can you explain why you thought the process needed refreshing, what problems you're seeking to cure for, and whether the changes you're introducing are likely to result in different outcomes, in particular with respect to the negotiation and coordination of remedies with other agencies, and I'm thinking in particular of the European Commission. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, maybe just sort of starting with some some general reflections on on kind of why we're doing this and, and why now particularly. So I would say I don't think it reflects um, us having identified particular problems that we think need to be addressed. And you know, we think overall, actually, the, the process, the regime works incredibly well. But of course, we want to make sure that it's working as well as it possibly can. And, you know, really importantly, to engage with stakeholders and, and hear and respond to, to the feedback that we are receiving. and. It seemed to me, it seemed to us a very good time to go through that exercise. We've got a couple of years under our belt in terms of sort of post-Brexit merger enforcement landscape. And actually, we're coming up to the 10-year anniversary of the CMA a little later this year. And the, you know, the processes that we have phase two, we basically inherited from the Competition Commission. So they are a good 10 plus years old. So I think a good time to do 
that review. I was really, really keen that we did it in a very engaged way, really, you know, to reflect the spirit of how we think the phase two process should work. It should be an engaged and constructive process. Likewise, we wanted to make sure that our review of the, the process um, was conducted in the same spirit. And I was really, really pleased, actually, that we, I think, had a very clear sort of reciprocation of that from the advisor community. I think we had really positive and, and strong engagement from a whole host of different stakeholders and, and pretty clear feedback, as you say, around looking for more opportunities to engage with the inquiry groups, particularly at an earlier stage in the process. You know, pretty strong message around the desire to have a standalone hearing, hearing where parties had the opportunity to respond directly to the provisional concerns that had been set out and um, feedback around the desire for, for greater engagement on remedies. And, you know, I think those are all very legitimate points to be raised and points that we we should and are reflecting on. So we put out towards the end of last year some proposed reforms to the phase two process, which obviously have quite a lot of detail in them, but but cover, I think, all of those key themes, including, for example, replacing the provisional findings with a new interim report, which will come a little earlier in the process, will be more provisional in nature. And I think it's important that everybody understands that, but it importantly, critically, means that we can create the opportunity for parties to engage directly with that, to have a hearing on that interim report, which I think was something that was heard loud and clear. We've looked at other opportunities through the early part of the process to increase direct engagement with the groups. And we've built out a much fuller process for engagement on remedies, which I think is incredibly important as we've we've been discussing already during this session. So, you know, we're working our way through those sort of proposals, gathering feedback on them and I'm very optimistic that we'll be able to sort of push through with those during the early parts of this year but I think you know it, as I say it's a great opportunity for us to, to listen to learn to continue to evolve not because there are fundamental issues with the regime but also or always to make sure that we can kind of reflect and improve. Thanks Sarah so it sounds like it should in future be somewhat easier to have parallel discussions with the CMA and the European Commission with respect to transactions subject to parallel review by both agencies. Just on that point, I think certainly on remedies, for example, the extent to which we are having those discussions earlier should encourage greater opportunity for, for more aligned parallel engagement. Thank you, Sarah. As you know well, one of the major changes in the regulatory environment that we and our clients confront concern the adoption of a foreign direct investment screening regime in the UK. And of course, there are other similar regimes now around the world. It's standard practice to request waivers to allow the CMA to speak with the Cabinet Office Unit handling FDI reviews. Can you briefly explain how the FDI regime operates alongside the CMA's merger regime? Give your view on how the two regimes are coexisting these days. Yeah, so I think as you know, it was reflected in the legislation, obviously the desire was to create a standalone regime, um, which is, as you say, is operated through the cabinet office and I think that's important and has worked well to keep that clarity that distinction of the different regimes and the different purposes but of course we need to make sure again that they're, they're not sort of operating in total isolation from one another so from a sort of procedural perspective we've developed I think a pretty good way of working we have regular exchange of information obviously where we have waivers in place which is is quite commonplace now and we have designated sort of contact points across the CMA and the cabinet office unit to make sure that we you know we can coordinate on timing we have good awareness of where we both are in our respective processes i don't think you know i, th I think it's probably still sort of relatively early 
days in the regime. So I don't think, for example, we have yet seen a circumstance where both agencies, both authorities are looking to impose an order in relation to, to a particular deal. That's probably something that, you know, we'll have to see how that works through in practice. But overall, I think so far so good. The regime is working well. I think merger parties, certainly from our perspective, seem to, to be able to navigate well the two regimes alongside one another. Thank you, Sarah. So let's turn to cartels. As you know, some have some have said the CMA has not been as engaged in taking in pursuing cartel investigations as it could have been. Have compared the CMA's output to that of the European Commission and speculated whether um, Brexit might be used as an opportunity to see a somewhat more active cartel enforcement practice at the CMA. We've seen uh, increasing um, private competition law actions being brought, and some have wondered whether the the risk of those actions may be discouraging companies from making leniency submissions, and that this may say something about the CMA. So a long way of getting to my question, Sarah, what's your thinking about the CMA's cartel enforcement? Yeah, so I mean, I actually don't don't particularly recognise the criticism that the CMA has sort of taken the foot off the pedal of cartel enforcement. And I think if you look at the throughput of our cases, and indeed particularly our kind of case launches over the last year, 18 months, um, we've got a very sort of healthy and vibrant, I would say, portfolio of cartel cases and indeed pretty strong pipeline of potential activity too. As with all of our work, we have taken quite careful choices about making sure we're prioritizing areas for action that align with our strategic priorities. So I think one of the interesting uptick areas of our cartel enforcement work has been a focus on labor markets. We've got a couple of cases now with sort of wage fixing, no poach aspects to them, a couple more potentially in the pipeline. That seems to be an area where there is potentially quite widespread anti-competitive conduct. So that is, that's a clear priority for us. That's something that we make very clear in our annual plan. Um, we've also seen really good alignment with the European Commission. So we've had a couple of case launches over the last year, which we have coordinated very closely, conducting coordinated raids, for example. Uh, so very strong cooperation there, which is, which is clearly important, as you say, in that post-Brexit era, era, not just for merger control, but also for cartel enforcement that the CMA is taking action to protect UK businesses and UK consumers. So I think under, under Juliet Anders' leadership, the cartels programme is, is alive and well. Our pipeline of, of cases, I think, is fairly evenly split in terms of cases that come through leniency and cases that come through sort of own initiative activity. So I don't think we've seen particular evidence of a drop off in relation to, to leniency applications. On your question on private enforcement, I think this is a really interesting area. And, and I think you know pri private enforcement is a really important complementary part of the overall regime because it's absolutely right that you know the CMA can't take action against every single area of, of illegal anti-competitive conduct. We have to prioritize where we take action. And as we know, each and any CA98 case is, is quite long and, and time consuming to deliver. So it, it is really important, I think, that private action operates as an effective complement and that, you know, that works by giving parties the ability to take action directly, to seek outcomes and resolution directly, and also obviously to uh, derive compensation, but also I think has a broader deterrent impact. 
one thing that we are quite mindful of when it comes to private action is the role of the CMA in interventions. And that's something that you know you will probably have seen a little bit of an uptick so far in expressing our interest in interventions. Obviously, the, the speed with which the private actions move means that that can be sort of slower to come to fruition. But there are a number of cases where we have signaled a potential interest in intervening, not surprisingly, particularly in relation to cases in digital markets where there's a, a sort of obvious overlap with areas of our own casework. And, and that, I think, is something that you should expect to continue, indeed, also with private actions uh, when we have the new powers in place. Thank you, Sarah. Staying with the courts, a question on judicial review. The CMA has been very successful before uh, the Competition Appeals Tribunal um, in in respect of merger control decisions that have been appealed where the uh, irrationality standard has proved hard to meet. Your predecessor, Andrea Cacelli, argued for a change in the standard of review for antitrust cases where the cat's been harder on you, I think, to make it less easy for the cat to overturn CMA decisions. What's your view on judicial review of non-merger decisions? So to be fair, I think that's probably a slight mischaracterization of Andrea's position. I don't think he was arguing for JR to make our lives easier. I think the key point on CA98 appeals was really the impact of a full merits appeal on the end-to-end process. And that's not just the greater length and complexity of the litigation or that in and of itself, I think is is a, a challenge, but also the impact that that has sort of all the way through our investigations. Now, you know, to be absolutely clear, I am very, very comfortable with the level of scrutiny that we get. And I say that not because I think we get a light ride, I don't think we do, because I think it's absolutely critical and, you know, I would say this as a lawyer and, and previously as general counsel, it's absolutely critical for the integrity of the regime across all areas of our work that we face proper rigorous judicial scrutiny. And I think we have that both in the areas where we are subject to judicial review. That's obviously not just on mergers, but for example, also in our markets cases. And it's equally the case, obviously, when it comes to full merits review on CA98. So I don't think I think it's a real sort of misrepresentation misperception. Some people think that the level of judicial scrutiny on mergers is is a relatively light touch regime. I think we have uh, in the judicial review standard a really very rigorous court review of process and approach and, and that includes our substantive reasoning and you can see that for example when you look at the judgment on Metagiffy as an example where you had really extensive and, and quite detailed court review of the analytical framework and our review of the evidence there. So I do think it's important that everybody understands the, the depth of and rigour of the review that you have even with a JR standard. And obviously that's something that we see coming through now with the new regime. What it, what it gives you, and I think this is equally important, is an efficiency of process. And that is really important. It's important in relation to merger control where parties obviously don't want to be left for years with a, a sort of shadow of uncertainty hanging over them. And it's critically important when we come to the new digital markets regime where, um, frankly, you know, we all, I think, share a common view that a regime which included litigation that meant that you had an end-to-end process of, sort of five or six years will not deliver any helpful outcomes for, for people and businesses affected by that conduct. So I'm very comfortable that we have rigorous and robust judicial review. And the reason I think that we have a pretty strong track record actually reflects the rigour 
of our own decision making. And, you know, that's something that we have also seen upheld in a couple of Court of Appeal judgments which have come through in recent times as well, which is which is good to see. Thank you, Sarah. Let me turn to digital regulation, as you know well. It looks like um, uh, the CMA is um, going to get the powers that it has wanted to establish a digital markets unit. Since the UK legislation was first proposed, the EU has adopted the Digital Markets Act, also seeking to regulate the world's leading digital platforms. How do you see the two regimes interacting? Are you going to replicate Brussels or chart a different course? And do you think the CMA is going to be able to establish a distinctive role in this space? So I think taking a step back, the two regimes and indeed action in in a number of other jurisdictions looking to tackle the competition concerns in digital markets, all ultimately motivated by the same common objective, the same desire to drive outcomes which improve competition in these digital markets, which are so critical to unlock innovation, growth and investment uh, to really create a vibrant digital economy going forward. So I think you know there is absolutely no difference in that sense between the objectives and the desired outcomes of the regime. And certainly also, I think, in the in the sort of overall approach of different agencies in seeking to achieve that. Of course, then when you sort of drill down into the detail of the different um, regime design aspects, then there are some differences. Um, And I think, you know, I think that's actually probably quite a good thing. I don't think there's a single unique way to address the competition concerns that we see in some digital markets. And, you know, I should say we focus a lot on the concerns, but of course, digital markets bring many, many benefits. And one of the I would hope advantages of the design of the UK regime is that it is a very targeted and and bespoke regime. So what we have, as as I'm sure you know, is a regime where the CMA will designate individual firms as having strategic market status. And that designation will be in relation to specific areas of digital activity. And once that designation has happened, we will also then have the power to introduce conduct requirements to manage the conduct of the SMS firm in relation to those designated activities. And that means that we will have a very targeted and bespoke approach, firm by firm, activity by activity, setting levels of of conduct requirements. We put out a publication a couple of weeks ago, which set out our sort of overview approach to implementing the new regime. And we gave a, you know, a bit of an initial flavour of the approach to developing and designing conduct requirements, how we would start again with this focus on outcomes. In some cases, that might be quite high level. In other cases, we'll drill down to a little more specificity. So I think it will be it will be really interesting to compare the, the DMA in Europe alongside our approach in the UK. The DMA perhaps has this sort of slightly more black and white rules based approach. The CMA regime will be a bit more bespoke and a bit more targeted. I think it will be very interesting to see how the companies themselves respond to those different regimes. We're already seeing responses by a number of the companies in Europe beginning to announce some of the changes that they'll be making. And I think it will be incredibly interesting to see the extent to which they choose to roll those changes over direct to the UK in anticipation of the the UK regime, the extent to which they kind of ring fence those changes for the EU. Um, and, And then on our, for our part, you know, the extent to which we think those changes will address any concerns we might have, or whether there may be opportunities to do things a little differently in the UK. And I suspect it will be, probably not surprisingly, it will be a mix of the two. In all of that, as with merger control, it's going to be very important that we don't end up 
with um, a, a sort of set of kind of fundamentally inconsistent uh, approaches. You know, that's clearly not attractive for businesses. It's not a good uh, set of outcomes for consumers. But I do think there are opportunities for different approaches at the same time. So we will have a very interesting time, I think, over the next couple of years as we step our way through that. Thanks, Sarah. Well, I hope you'll come back in a couple of years and we can take a view about how things have been going. <laughs> One of the other changes in the law, as you know, is to allow the CMA to take infringement decisions for breaches of consumer law. Uh, do you see this being an important focus of activity in the future? Yeah, it is. And it's an incredibly important focus. And I'm really pleased that you raised it because I think the slight risk at the moment is that with the DMCC bill, everybody's very focused on the digital markets aspects. And I, I think that the changes that we're seeing on the consumer protection side are equally important. We have really stepped up our programme of activity in relation to consumer protection. And that absolutely started under Andrea. And, and we've continued that over the last year or so, um, you know, probably particularly accelerated through COVID, I think, and, and coming out the other side with a particular focus on cost of living issues where consumer protection is a very effective tool. But we do think that there's real benefit to moving to an administrative model where the CMA can take its own decisions and, and importantly, where we can impose fines, because what we see at the moment is the absence of fines really creates a bit of a lacuna when it comes to a deterrent effect. So that will be a big focus for us alongside our digital markets work over over the next couple of years. And I you know, strongly believe that that will drive real improvements in outcomes for consumers. Thanks, Sarah. One of the other initiatives you've pursued over the last year is uh, publishing guidance on environmental sustainability. And if I understand the guns, you're really encouraging companies uh, to come in to seek informal guidance on whether agreements they're contemplating entering into may be permitted because of the benefits for climate change. Is is that a message that you would encourage companies to take away from the guidance? Yes, yeah, so I've talked quite a bit already about our sort of refresh strategy and one of our clear strategic priorities was to focus on what we could do as the CMA to support the UK's transition to a, a net zero economy. So there are a couple of dimensions to this. One is what we can do to really help um, emerging markets for sustainable products and services thrive in, in, a, in an open and effective competitive environment, but also in a way that supports consumers. And we've seen that, for example, in our work on electric vehicle charging. We've also got a lot of work back to the consumer protection piece in relation to misleading green claims. But as you say, the sort of third pillar if you like, of our work on sustainability is, is really about making sure that we break down the barriers and we are, we are crystal clear that concerns about competition law compliance don't get in the way of legitimate cooperation that is needed and will be needed, I think, to achieve some of the, the, the net zero transition that is, is clearly necessary. Now, you know, obviously that shouldn't be a shield for actual anti-competitive behaviour. That's clearly critical. But we have heard yeah, a lot of feedback that a number of businesses have had concerns about how far they can go legitimately in collaborative engagement with their competitors. So we put out the guidance last year and we really did try to take quite a different approach with that guidance to make it really accessible and, and user friendly for businesses and to support that with very much a sort of open door policy where businesses and their advisors can come in, can, can talk to us about their proposed initiatives and get a view from us on whether they raise any competition concerns. And that has been, I think, it's still relatively early days, but that has been already quite a successful approach. We've had a number of companies and advisors coming in 
to talk to us. And that's that's something that we are really actively encouraging over the next year or so, because through that, we can also build up a better understanding on our side of the kind of issues that business is grappling with. We can publish summaries of the advice that we're giving, which hopefully provides broader support to businesses and advisors. So it is important and and hopefully the more sort of open and informal approach that, that we're taking there will be will be well received by companies. Thanks very much. So the CMA's door is very much open. My final topic before the quick fire question, you're the first woman to become CEO of the CMA, which is groundbreaking. Do you think the glass ceiling has been broken? And if not, what remains to be done? So I never really think of myself as, well, I've got this, you know, I've got this role and it's important I've got this role because I'm a woman. I, I like to think of it in terms of what I do and achieve as as me rather than because of my gender. But having said that, you know, I do think it's important to kind of use my role to help support not just issues in relation to, to gender opportunities, but a whole host of different issues in relation to equality and diversity. And that's something that we put a lot of emphasis on in the CMA. We want to make sure that we are a fully inclusive and supportive working environment, not just to benefit our colleagues who work with us, but critically and importantly, because the CMA is an organisation that represents and works on behalf of the whole of the UK. And we need to make sure that we are a representative body in doing that. So, you know, that that is my focus. I think we are doing a lot. I think there is more to be done and there's also more that we can do across initiatives. For example, I think the work that we've been participating in with the Law Society and many others to support diversity initiatives in the, in the competition legal profession is an incredibly important one. Thanks, Sarah. To the quick fire questions, when historians write about your tenure, how would you like to be remembered? So I had it put to me the other day, robust but pragmatic, which which sounded uh, which sounded reasonable. I think the critical thing for me, going back to the very start, is that I'd like to be measured by the impact and the outcomes of the work that we've done. That you know that is the shining star for us, and I think that's the critical thing that that I would like to be remembered for. I think when I look at the year ahead, successfully delivering on the new regimes on the digital market side and the consumer admin model, clearly critical projects. Second question is, perhaps looking back, what's your proudest achievement and your greatest regret? I genuinely don't think I have a greatest regret. Maybe I'm just very fortunate with my career that I have been in the right place at the right time and been able to have a career that I have just absolutely loved and enjoyed. And um, I am incredibly proud of really everything that we have achieved this year. I think probably what we have done over the course of the last year has surpassed most people's expectations and possibly even my own. So I'm very proud of that, but I also don't rest easy that there is plenty more for us to do. Well, I completely agree with that, Sarah. I think expectations were high, but I think you've exceeded them. So I agree with that self-assessment, if that's what it was. Third question, if you could change one thing about UK competition uh, law, what would it be? So we touched on this actually earlier when we were talking about appeal standards and and competition enforcement cases. It's not to change the appeal standard. I'm fine with that. I do think that we need to crack speeding up our Competition Act enforcement cases. And that is a regime challenge, I think, rather than just one for the CMA. And I do think it's one that we would benefit from constructive engagement from the advisory community because it cannot be right that these big complex antitrust cases take the length of time that they take. And it's probably 
in the 10 years I've been at the CMA, it's been the single biggest thing to crack. So, so a renewed effort on that, I think, would be good. Thank you very much. And my last question, is there one thing you can tell us about yourself that's not widely known? Well, if there is, I'm going to keep it a secret. <laughs> Sarah, that is a great way to end. As you know, we've been trying to record this podcast for well over a year. I'm really happy it's taken so long because I think the passage of time has made it a much richer discussion. Thank you very much. Thanks, Good luck with the year to come. Really appreciate the time and your candor with the questions and hope we get another chance in a year or two to find out how you're doing and to look back on some of the predictions you made. Absolutely. Thanks very much. Thank you, Sarah. So I'm Nick Levy. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We'll be back soon.